Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. This episode is a continuation of the last episode with Spencer Levy. First episode, we will talk about his bio and his background a little bit, his evolution coming up from New York, going to Cornell and Harvard Law School, and then getting into real estate law for five years in New York, and then deciding to go into investment banking with Lake Mason in Baltimore, and was there until the financial crisis, and then decided to get into the brokerage industry with CBRE and investment management and then the research area. So you'll hear about that in the first part episode. The next episode, we talk about CBRE's global footprint and their services, as well as the competitive nature of brokerage and how they look at the brokerage industry. And the final one is about the DC area. And we do a flyover of each product type, including office, retail, industrial, apartments, student housing, and data centers to learn about each of the segments. So I hope you enjoy each of the following three episodes. This is part two, which will include an overview of the history of CBRE and its evolution, both nationally and internationally as a company, and its competitive advantages, as well as their company policies on employment and the thought process on the competitive nature of brokerage today. I thought we'd explore those issues with Spencer to give some perspective for this continuing episode. So I hope you will enjoy it. Spencer, welcome back to phase two Mm -hmm. or segment two of our three-part podcast today. So now I want to move into CBRE global perspective, kind of what the company, its global impact, company itself, a little bit of evolution. Maybe you can give a little bit of background of CBRE and its history briefly, and then talk about its overall impact worldwide as a, as a real as the largest brokerage firm in the world. Sure. Well, CBRE has its roots. If you want to go all the way back in the uh, San Francisco fire of like 1906, uh, At which point, I think, while it, <laughs> hard to draw a line from there to here. Uh, where we probably had 20 employees in San Francisco to now probably over 100,000 or close to that, I think it did show the character of the company because the story as it's been told is that after the terrible tragedy of the San Francisco fire, we were standing there to help our clients. We were there. We did not abandon the market. Mm -hmm. And I think that I start with that story because that talks to what's extraordinarily important at our company, which is our values. Our values are rise, respect, integrity, service, excellence. And so while the San Francisco fire may be like George Washington cutting down the cherry tree type of um, story, uh, I do believe it to be true because I can see its um, remnants today in terms of the character of the company. But the company has grown tremendously over the last hundred years. Uh, We were originally part of Coldwell Banker, uh, which is, uh, in fact, we were Coldwell Banker Commercial until about 30 plus years ago when we split off 
from Coldwell Banker. We were part of Sears, which owned Coldwell Banker. And then uh, the other name change that happened uh, was probably about 20 years ago when we bought a firm in London called Richard Ellis. So it became CB, Coldwell Banker, Richard Ellis. That was the, mm-hmm. how the name came about. And then uh, more recently, CBRE no longer stands for anything. It's just CBRE, but that's, that's the, how the, the name came about. But we grew through uh, M&A and through uh, organic growth over many years, evolving from a company that uh, was primarily brokerage, leasing, and sales to one that is actually primarily corporate services today with a tremendous amount of corporate sales. And I think that's an important evolution for our company and our industry as we have these wonderful uh, brokerage services, uh, which we call advisory and transaction services, but this wonderful corporate services as well, uh, representing the vast majority of the Fortune 500 companies in the world on property management and related services as well. Uh, we also have a big buy side. We have a, a segment called CBRE Global Investors, which is one of the largest direct investors in real estate in the world, uh, which gives us this uh, quite candidly tremendous platform from which uh, to give uh, our global clients global advice. Uh, to speak about the research area, which is what I'm part of, we have over 600 research professionals globally, over 300 here in the Americas, 300 plus elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, it gives us an unbelievable uh, ability to advise global clients on not just macro trends, but country trends, but real estate trends and bring it all together. I meet with my global clients or speak to them or email them almost daily about the trends you're seeing uh, in the world. And because of this coronavirus uh, thing that's happening right now, I just hosted a call with my great colleague, Henry Chin, who runs Asia and Europe on Thursday. And we had 2,700 of our global clients on that call to say, what is the implication for you? The punchline of our call was don't overreact. We think this too shall pass, notwithstanding the terrible current uh, concerns that many people have. So that's a great exhibit of how we can bring to bear global knowledge to our local clients in a, in a very tangible way, in part because of our terrific platform. Well, brokerage historically and still is a very competitive business. Mm-hmm. So how is CBRE setting itself apart from other firms uh, from a you know, competitive perspective? Well, there's really, there's really two aspects to that. One is good old-fashioned talent and hard work. And I'm fortunate that I know hundreds, if not thousands, of our transactional professionals. I probably know thousands at this point. And straight up, I've been in this business 25 years. These are the most talented people I've ever worked with. And you know, when I say talent, talent is not just financial talent. It's not just real estate talent. It's the talent on how to get a deal done. So I learned a lesson many moons ago when I was a young lawyer. There's only three things that matter when you're negotiating a deal. Facts, logic, and leverage. And what's happening now is that facts and logic through data and artificial intelligence are only going to become more accessible to everybody, us included. But we're still going to be tremendously competitive because of leverage. Our people understand how to get the deal done. How do you use the facts and logic to the benefit uh, of our clients and our uh, customers? So the, the way the business has evolved is this. I did a presentation last week with a global real estate investor. And what he was saying to me was that he now has 80 in-house proprietary models, each with a basket of assets that are 95% accurate when it comes to predicting the outcome of a real estate transaction. And that's, that's pretty impressive. And he also said to me that macro matters more than the micro. He also said that 
he would have been better off picking the worst sub-market in San Francisco than the best sub-market in an underperforming market. And so that's why he's very macro-driven. He's very data-driven. He's very growth-driven. And believe it or not, these big, sophisticated investors think much more simply when you boil it down than you think. Which brings me back to my professionals. My professionals have seen the evolution of data and artificial intelligence and getting this information to the clients. I, I speak to my top brokers all the time. They tell me all my clients want is more information. They want more data so that they can put it into their models. But then they are able to package it and use it in a way for the benefit of our clients and customers better than anybody else. So it's evolved. We're all data and AI driven. But that leverage point of understanding how to do a deal is very human and will be with us indefinitely. Well, the, the other issue is just parsing everything. I mean, how do you determine with all this incoming what's really critical and important? Mm -hmm. And I assume your brokers help with that process. Of, of course they do. And, and, but it's an iterative process. We're also a very, I'm biased when I say this, John, by the way. We're also a very research-driven shop. Of course we are, because I'm in research, right? But it's true because there's always a give and take with my professionals on trends and how they are impacting them in the local markets. So I'll give you one example. Okay, and this is relevant to Washington, D.C., which I know is our next segment. Densification. One of the major trends in our business today is having less square footage for the average employee. And, and that pendulum has been swinging now for some time. It applies to, to everybody. Right now, when I say that to some of my professionals, they get very concerned. They go, oh, well, that means it's going to be more difficult to underwrite this building because this tenant that takes 100,000 square feet might take 75,000 tomorrow. And what do I do about that? Well, fear not, because we get much more granular than saying, here's the mega trend. We say, well, here's the mega trend, but this is how it applies to you. And it applies to some markets more than it applies to others. So I'll give you the example of Washington, D.C versus another market, okay? Washington, D.C. is disproportionately what I call an old school market. What does old school mean? It means they have a disproportionate number of old school tenants, which are law, accounting, government, and secondarily finance. New school tenants are tech, information, media, et cetera. Now, tech, information, media had the new office format, had densified years before the old school tenants did. The old school tenants are now densifying and they're also no longer wedded to being two blocks from the White House, they can now move to places like the Yards or the Wharf or National Landing in D.C. Uh, now, they may densify when they go there, but they are going to act differently in D.C. than would be a TAMI, a tech information media tenant, might uh, act in San Francisco. So it's an iterative process. I'm always speaking to my brokers about the facts on the ground. They're always asking me the trends, and then I'm saying this is how it applies to you. Got it. So I was going to say, uh, what do you do to promote your research efforts and support the brokers? But you just gave that story. So I don't that, and, that and social media. Uh, I would say that social media, and believe me, if you thought I wasn't destined to be a public speaker, I was <laughs> definitely not destined to be a social media guy. I barely am on Facebook. I only put one on there three years ago because a friend of mine told me I wasn't on Twitter until four years ago. And I wasn't on LinkedIn until about then either. Now I probably have more followers than anybody at the company and one of the biggest followings in the entire industry. Why? It works. It's easy. Very effective. And I will tell you, it's not just for the younger folks that are disproportionately listening to this mm -hmm. uh, podcast. It's some boards of directors, members of my own company have come up to me and, and 
mentioned my my blog posts. And you know which blog posts they mentioned? They don't mention the one where I gave a sophisticated analysis of why foreign capital is going into commercial real estate in Warsaw, Poland. They come up to me because of the funny posts, a post where I went down a slide at the White Castle Corporation or almost fell off a scooter in Kansas City. The human element combined with the business element. Stories. It's all a seamless web, John. I get it. I get it. Historically, brokerage was a street learning profession where information was gathered via personal relationships and soliciting data. Explain the explosion of data and how CBRE manages and implements it. Well, I think that's a a broad generalization, but I could point to several of the top brokers I have in my company and several of the top private equity professionals in the entire business. And you know where a lot of them started like 25, 30 years ago? They started in research or they started in- Database management. Or in valuation advisory services, appraisals. The people that have climbed the highest are the people that started 25, 30 years ago in the data. Which is why going back to my own personal professional experience in the prior portion of this podcast I mentioned, I talked about when I moved from being a lawyer to a banker, the best career move I ever made was taking a step back and learning how to underwrite real estate yes. using modeling. And so I modeled for years mm-hmm. to learn exactly what the nuts and bolts were. And that's what these great professionals were. So I think what's old is new, right? It used to be retail, it used to be the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. Well, guess what's coming back again? The butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. <laughs> and just like that, data's cool again. So I think that the business has evolved, and I still believe firmly, when I speak to these young professionals at schools, one of the best places you could start your career is as an appraiser or in research. Looking at the global real estate markets, it seems that all but third world countries have access to very current information instantaneously. Has this accelerated deal volume and made transactions more efficient? My sense is that perhaps deal volume is up, but transactions are no more efficient as other influences have bogged them down. Correct or not in your perspective? Well, I think that once you get outside of the United States and maybe the UK, it's actually still very hard to get good real estate information. Believe it or not, the world is still scratching the surface in countries like Brazil countries like Mexico, countries like China, and still not as transparent as you might think that it is. Uh, And we have a long way uh, to go to get perfect data transparency because the reason why sales data is so good is because you're legally required to record it. Mm -hmm. The reason why NACREF data is so good is because unless you give data to NACREF, you're not getting it. Right. So there's a little bit of carrot and stick in this world. So I would disagree with your characterization that the data is great every place. But but, you know, emerging market economies, I still think the data isn't great even here. And a lot of the data we have, we don't know how to use it and we use it too generally. So I'll give you one thing I hear all the time. I often hear about, well, you know, your vacancy rate in Dallas is so high. How could you possibly build well, two things. Number one, Dallas always has vacancy above 15%. It's called structural vacancy, right? Just the way it is. The second thing is, is something I learned recently in San Antonio. And it's called, if you build it, they will come. Because in San Antonio, the average class A market rents $21.50, right? And you say, oh, I could never afford to build a building. Well, guess what? Some people took a flyer, built the building, and you know what they're getting in rents? 45 to $55 a foot top line, 
Because if you build it, they will come not only from within your market, but from outside the market. So every time I go to a market like a Jacksonville and they're like, oh, we can't build one. Yes, you can. Best example of all is where I was on Friday, which is Nashville. Nashville, I, t- I told this to the, uh, the head of my office down there at dinner on Thursday. I said, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, I was scared to death in Nashville the last four years because every mathematical formula model we had said that Nashville was overbuilt and it was bound for a fall. Well, guess what was wrong? Our models were wrong. Our models have been knocking San Francisco for years, too. It was wrong because they didn't understand that there was a secular shift of demand towards these markets where the old stuff didn't apply. Now, when you're in research, there's really two ends of the spectrum of your argument. One end of the spectrum is the, quote, this time is different. Okay. Now, when you see a fancy guy in a suit like this that says this time is different, you should grab your wallet and run out of the room screaming. Okay. Well, the other argument is reversion to the mean. That is what drives most financial models. And that's why the model didn't work in Nashville. It didn't work in San Francisco. It didn't work in Denver. I can go right down the list. Because the mean wasn't relevant anymore when there was this secular shift. It's interesting. Lots of change then. Okay, so CBRE offers a broad array of services and addresses customers' needs in some way. How do various aspects of the company work with each other to maximize the service offering to the clients? Well, look, we, we try to act as a team. I mean, it's, a, it's as simple as that. I had meetings on Friday with my uh, global workplace solutions clients. I had a meeting on Monday with my investor clients, and I have I do events for my valuation advisory services clients and every group in between. Uh, the only way you can have teamwork is to have teamwork and have a culture of teamwork. And so I would say that we, we are not perfect by a, by a long shot. People are still driven uh, by individual or corporate P and Ls for their subsector. There's no doubt that that exists here and every place else. But I would say of the, the big companies I've been to, and I've been to several, I think the culture here of sharing the client comes first always is the predominant thing. And it comes down to not just doing the right thing, but actually, believe it or not, even in a big company, it comes down to personal relationships. So when I have a go-to question on appraisal or on um, another service line, I have my go-to people in those areas that was built based on personal relationships. So notwithstanding the teamwork ethos of the company, personal relationships are still most important. So let's just say you're a broker and you've got a a big corporate national client. Mm -hmm. Would you normally be the lead on that if you're the the closest to the decision maker and then you would then subcontract that or or engage internally to raise that, uh, help that other, that client? It depends. There are some that are that are like that. There are yeah. some that are corporate accounts. And it, 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 there's a lot of factors that go into it. But ultimately, it comes down to what best serves the client. Why should a young per- person consider the brokerage business today? I think the brokerage business has never been more exciting. Um, I've been in this business for 25 years. And as I mentioned in my prior segment, my dad's client when I was a kid was a brokerage house in New York called Cooper Horowitz. So I've been hanging around brokers since I was like literally five years old. And so, you know, I still pinch myself sometimes when I, when I meet with some of the legends of our business. And I'm fortunate that many of them are here at this company. But there's no way to learn the business than eating what you kill. And I'm not saying that brokerage is for everybody. It's not for everybody. And for people who are listening to this call, I have a funny story for you. You know, of all the people that I meet with 
at all the universities I go to, I always ask the same question here. So who here wants their first job out of college to be the junior analyst at the biggest private equity firm in the world? Every hand goes up. I say, okay, now for the 1% of you that are getting that job, what are the rest of you going to do? And the rest of you need to find a path into the business. And the best path is not necessarily starting on day zero as a broker. And maybe starting day zero in valuation or in research to become that valuable broker. But starting as a junior analyst on a brokerage team is a great way to learn too. But I don't care what you do. First job out of college, first job out of grad school. I do care that you do a lot of volume. I think that whatever job you get right out of school, you should go to a place where you underwrite absolutely everything, all different asset types, work long hours. And here's the kicker. Here's the earmuffs moment for every senior management who's listening to this call. (laughs) Go out and kick the bricks. Go see the real estate. Physically walk it. Don't just go with the brokers. Go on your own spare time and look around. I can't tell you how many times I go to a local office globally, and it's the first time that a researcher or a marketing person has left the offices to film me in some one-minute segment. It, it drives me bananas because why are we in real estate? Because we have physical attributes that you can touch and feel and understand something by walking around. So don't just underwrite everything. See the real estate. Walk the buildings. Find out who the building manager is. Have them pour you in the buildings and think about it and draw a conclusion. That's what's going to make you great. Well, it separates the real estate business from the other investment businesses, right? bonds, stocks, everything else. Kicking the bricks and understanding there's three dimensions in my view. There's the verbal, the numbers, and the art. Mm-hmm. You've got to understand the art, and the only way to know it is to get out and see it physically. A- Amen. I can't say it enough. Go leave the office. Absolutely. That's great. So when I was a broker, uh, there was a starvation level starting salary. And when deal volume picked up, started to pick up, put on draw, and then allowed one to earn, allow one some to earn way into a straight commission, 50-50 split type of deal. Subsequently, was increased success. The splits became bit better for the broker, sometimes up to 75-25, depending on total volume. Has that changed? And how are brokers, how are top producers retained by the firm to pre- prevent them from jumping to competition? Well, look. Without going into the specifics of our splits, it's, it's not that different than, than the way you started, where people start off with draws or, or for you know, very low salaries. And then as they become more senior producers, they get better splits. That's just that's how the business uh, is. is. Is that how it is at all shops? No, it's not how it is at all shops. Different shops do it differently. Some people do more of an investment banking type of compensation model where you have salary plus bonus. But uh, you know, I think there's merits to both systems. But ultimately... Starting off as a junior professional, having if you're going to be a broker, it's not just eating what you kill. It's cold calling and getting told the magic word no enough times and figuring out how to get past that over the long term that will make you a successful transactional professional. So I think getting into the weeds of splits and stuff like that is secondary to what to the intent. The intent is learning how to transact, learning how to speak to people and learning how to face rejection in a professional way. And the retain, retention piece, how do you keep your brokers? I mean, you got big producers, why wouldn't they jump? I mean, why would they want to stay with CBR? Just because of the, the, the overall scale and depth in the marketplace or? Uh, well, I would say the primary reason, and you know, there, there are other things involved as well, but I would sure. say that the, 
what we're trying to create is an irreplaceable platform for our producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a top professional, smart, great relationships, I'm not going to say you're not going to be successful someplace else. That's just not true. Okay. What is true is that it's my job and the job of leaders of this company to make this platform irreplaceable from not just our level and quality of services, but also from the uh, information that we have that others don't, that uh, gives our uh, clients and customers an edge. So uh, that's my job. My job is to give them a reason to say, you know what, CBRE is by far the best platform in the world, uh, which most of them choose, not all, but most. And uh, we're going to keep working on that. It's a quality of platform wins at the end of the day. There was, a, there was a great book on this. I'll give you a book recommendation. Not even a book that I wrote. There was a book. It was called Machine Platform Crowd. Uh, it was written by Andrew McAfee and Eric uh, Brynjofferson. And basically talks about the company of the future has the best platform. That's what we're trying to create. That's great. So uh, final question in this segment. Brokerage is a volatile business. And when markets are challenging, there needs to be more stable income which is probably among the reasons for the steady income stream in businesses like property management and others that are steady. Going back to CB's history, CBRE's history, was the growth of those businesses to kind of level out the beta in the earnings situation at becoming a public company, thinking that way? Or was it, were there other reasons for that? Well, look, we, we are very fortunate to be the leader in many things but I don't think anybody would suggest to you that having a diversified revenue streaming with a high percentage of it being from recurring revenues is a bad thing, right? <laughs> and I guess we've uh, certainly evolved our business that a higher percentage of our revenues are now from recurring rather than brokerage, but still it's a high percentage in both. So this company has been built for to go the distance, to have a, a great um, operating uh, platform, and I think that diversification has helped. Spencer, thank you for your candid responses on uh, the segment about CB's international market. And so uh, we'll be, move on to segment three next. Thank you. Got it.